Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated gay people through history. My name is Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. Last week we looked at Pierce Gaveston, a medieval favourite of King Edward II, who tried to connive his way to the top of the courts, but um, did it so badly he ended up dead. Ben, who are we talking about this week? Fasten your seatbelts, Hugh. This one's going to be a bumpy ride. I'm going to open with a quote from the historian Robert Cairo, who said, quote, There's an old saying, All power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the more I've learned, the less I believe it. Power doesn't always corrupt. What power always does is reveal. When a guy gets into a position where he doesn't have to worry anymore, then you see what he wanted to do all along, end quote. Who does that make you think of in the universe of world historical bad gays? Um, I can think of a few people, but I don't think you're going to be able to tell me. Well, today we are going to be talking about J. Edgar Hoover. Oh my God. J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI from 1924 to 1972, and who started his career in public service in the mailroom of the Justice Department and rose to be the uh, United States national champion against its foes, uh, both internal and external. First the Nazis, and then the communists, and everyone who uh, wanted to voice political dissent. J. Edgar Hoover, who once said, and I quote, justice is incidental to law and order. On the theme of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, there was a guy named Nicholas Katzenbach, who was the Attorney General of the United States under Lyndon Johnson, and he resigned in 1966 because of resistance from Hoover, who had been told by Katzenbach that he actually had to manage the FBI within the bounds of the law of the United States. And Katzenbach said that the director's power was unique among all national officials. He said, and I quote, no one dared object. The FBI was a principality with absolutely secure borders. And Katzenbach also said that a congressional investigation of the FBI during Hoover's lifetime would have been utterly impossible. Quote, Mr. Hoover would have vigorously resisted. He would have asserted that the investigation was unnecessary, unwise, and politically motivated. At worst, he would have denounced the investigation as undermining law and order and inspired by communist ideology. No one in Congress risked that confrontation during his lifetime. End quote. Under Hoover's reign, um, even mild dissent could make any American citizen worthy of being spied on and having an ongoing FBI file, and these files would sometimes last for decades. In 1976, the authors of a book called The Lawless State wrote, quote, The FBI has operated on a theory of subversion that assumes that people cannot be trusted to choose among political ideals. The FBI has assumed the duty to protect the public by placing it under surveillance, end quote. Under Hoover's reign, this secret FBI, which operated under principles antithetical to democracy and good law enforcement, thrived at the top of the federal government and affected the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans. Uh, various officials were aware of some aspects of this, but tolerated the situation for several reasons, including fear of J. Edgar Hoover's power to utterly destroy the reputation of anyone who raised any questions about the operations of the FBI. An FBI agent named Arthur Murtaugh was quoted as saying, uh, quote, 
I certainly do not want to indicate that Hoover did not have some unusual ability in structuring an organization designed to perpetuate a sort of dictatorial control of both the FBI and, so far as he could manage it, the minds and aspirations of American citizens, but so did Adolf Hitler. So J. Edgar Hoover was born on January 1st, 1895 at 7.30 a.m., and as a child, he kept a file and a dossier on himself. <laughs> he, he wrote a formal report of his own birth uh, in a small leather-bound notebook, uh, which uh, was inscribed on the front, Mr. Edgar Hoover, Private. And he was born at a time when the Civil War was still within living memory. Um, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln was closer uh, then historically than the assassination of President Kennedy uh, is today. And so the Union still only had 45 member states. Uh, in 1895, Americans were talking about war with England over territories in Latin America, and soon the Spanish-American War would break out and result in U.S. conquest. Just four years before uh, J. Edgar Hoover was born, uh, the standoff at Wounded Knee uh, brought to a close the period of indigenous resistance, uh, or sort of open indigenous resistance uh, in that phase of the genocide of the 19th century. Um, his mother had had a very privileged upbringing. Uh, she had been educated at a convent in Switzerland. Um, she was apparently very much a lady, loving and proud. His father was a member of the Victorian clerical class that was so memorably portrayed by Herman Melville in the story Bartleby the Scrivener. Um, a family photograph is described as showing his father, quote, as a troubled looking figure of the Victorian clerical class, cramped in high collar and formal dress, his bowler on his knee. His wife stands behind him, severe in high necked blouse and dark jacket, her hair piled on top of her head, her lips tightly compressed, trying and failing to smile, end quote. So it sounds like a very happy, love-filled family. And the earliest photograph existence of Edgar shows a sullen-faced boy sitting at his parents' side, and he's wearing a brass button jacket, a watch chain, and knickerbockers. And J. Edgar was known as a high-strung child, as sickly and excessively fearful, who clung to his mother whenever he could. Now, Edgar keeping a dossier on himself was not necessarily uh, unusual in his family. His family was obsessed with diaries and with his organization. Um, his niece remembered that, quote, everything had to be cataloged and the pictures had to be straight on the wall, end quote. And this was a family that was filled with various sort of overwrought forms of religion. They were primarily Lutherans with Catholic influence. Uh, Edgar would pretend throughout his life to be Presbyterian, although he seems to not have had any strong religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. As a child, however, uh, he became obsessed with the fictional or apocryphal gospel of Judas, which is written from the point of view of Judas as the betrayer of Jesus. And this story of uh, constant incipient betrayal uh, apparently stuck in his mind and seemed to have governed a lot of his uh, later paranoia and obsession with uh, imagined betrayal. Now, he went to Central High School in Washington, D.C., where his family lived and always wanted to be an athlete, but never was. Uh, later in life, he would pretend that his uh, plug-nosed profile was the result of a baseball injury, but actually he was an effeminate and weak child who, and I quote, always held men with fine physiques in awe, end quote. Same. And he hero-worshipped his friend Lawrence Biff Jones, who was a football hero. Biff. Biff. 
he went into the cadet corps, uh, which is an early form of ROTC or art, um, army training, and hoped to go to West Point. And his, uh, shall we say, less than progressive political outlook was evident from various positions he took in his high school debate club, including um, that Cuba should be forcibly colonized and annexed to the United States, that women should not receive the right to vote, and to quote his notes from that period, one, the Bible stands for capital punishment, two, all Christian nations uphold it, three, the abolition of it would be deplorable in effect on a country. Okay. So uh, as J. Edgar was graduating high school, his father began to suffer the effects of a severe mental illness. Uh, when he died in 1921, the death certificate indicated the cause of death as melancholia, and melancholia was the word that was then used for what doctors today would call clinical depression. Um, basically, death by that looks like the patient losing the will to live, uh, ceasing to eat, and then dying. That was a very kind of uh, drawn out and disturbing death that seems to have been a traumatic effect in the young J. Edgar's life. His mother, Annie, would be his only constant family connection. Uh, neither one of them seemed to have liked his father very much, and after the father's death, they became totally inseparable. Edgar lived at home with his mother until he was a middle-aged man. She died in 1938, and that was when he finally left home, when he was already head of the FBI, had been for 14 years, and was a 40-something-year-old Wow. Um, Bates Hotel style. Absolutely. Oh, it gets even more Bates Hotel-y. We're going to talk about home life in a little bit. Holy crap. Um, he later would claim that he had been sort of deciding at this point whether to join the law or to join the church. But as we said, he never seems to have been personally particularly religious. Uh, he ended up studying law at George Washington University Law School and graduating with a degree in law in 1916. And uh, at this point, his father was losing the ability to work. And so through family connections, he got a job at the Department of Justice. And while he was a law student, J. Edgar became fascinated by the career of Anthony Comstock, who was the New York City uh, postal inspector and who waged prolonged campaigns in the late 19th and early 20th century against fraud, vice, pornography, and birth control. And Edgar would always say that that first job that he got at the Department of Justice was a clerkship, and his personnel file in the FBI said that he was a special employee but actually, he began his career working in the mailroom. So uh, at this time, a man named Bruce Bielaski was director of the Bureau of Investigation, which was the forerunner of what we now know as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, the FBI. And it was created in 1908. And uh, when it was created, uh, Congress sought to make sure that it wasn't used for oppressive political ends and that its powers were never held by one man. And they did a good job of that. They did a great job of that. Uh, But the Bureau of Investigation was created to uh, probe crimes that involved crossing state boundaries, like antitrust, banking violation, uh, and the Mann Act. And the Mann Act was a law that made it a crime to carry a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. Now, uh, Bielaski... was recommended uh, Hoover by a neighbor of his who said, well, you know, this is this bright young man working in the mailroom and maybe he could be useful to you. But he did not immediately bring Edgar into the mailroom. Instead, he told John Lord O'Brien, who was head of the War Emergency Division in the Department of Justice about Edgar, 
And so on December 14th, 1917, my birthday, not 1917, but December 14th, um, the name of Hoover's special agent appeared in a memorandum. And so uh, just short of his 23rd birthday, Edgar suddenly became responsible for deciding what to do with suspect foreigners. Now, during World War I, there were all kinds of uh, issues with German nationals or people of ethnic German descent in the U.S., um, there was a sort of movement of uh, fear that these Germans were going to be loyal to the Kaiser and not loyal to their new government. Um, just some recommendations uh, that Edgar made during this period as the department kind of judged these various cases in this climate of domestic political repression during World War I. There was a German uh, national who was 18 years old and who was arrested on the Texas border for mouthing support for the Kaiser. And Edgar's <laughs> recommendation was that he be detained and imprisoned until the end of the war. Another German uh, referred to President Wilson as a cocksucker and a thief. <laughs> and Edgar again recommended internment until the end of the war. Uh, and in these cases, he was overruled on the grounds that uh, just talk didn't justify that kind of punishment. Uh, in 1918, uh, he advocated for a drive to register all German women in the United States. And uh, when that was reported on uh, in June of 1918, he rushed off a memo denying it, a memo that was lying because he was working on it. And that began a very antagonistic relationship he had with the Post and the New York Times for the rest of his life. He would uh, specifically never uh, read them and was later quoted as saying, quote, when they throw brickbats at the FBI, I'm happy. Brickbats from some people are like bouquets. And he was known as a hard worker. What's interesting is that no one can quite figure out how he avoided the draft because he was able-bodied and he was, um, this is a period when um, vast numbers of Americans are being drafted to serve in World War I. So perhaps connections were pulled to keep this kind of hard worker uh, going in the service of the Department of Justice instead of going off to fight in Europe. Um, now, at this point, he seems to have had uh, perhaps a youthful fling with a woman. Um, he exhibited somewhat of the classic misogynist attitude of Madonna whore, where women were on pedestals, but he was also constantly degrading them in their intelligence. And of course, his mother was always there to tell him that uh, whatever girl he was maybe interested in certainly wasn't good enough for her perfect Edgar. Um, to get into the home life of Edgar and Annie a bit, um, his breakfast was a poached egg on toast every day. And if the egg was broken, his mother would send it back to the kitchen staff to create another egg, and he would then eat one bite and feed the rest to the dog. In their house, the shades were always drawn. Wow. That reminds me of the similar story about Prince Charles having nine boiled eggs made for him every morning so he could get one that was the right consist consistency. Gah. So now we get to one of the uh, darkest episodes in the history of American political repression of the left, which is the Palmer Raids. So the Palmer Raids were a series of raids conducted in late 1919 and early 1920 by the Wilson administration to capture and arrest people suspected of being radical leftists. And these were mostly uh, Italian and Jewish immigrants, uh, anarchists and communists, you know, the kind of people that I'm descended from. 
Um, and these raids occurred under the leadership of the Attorney General, whose name was A. Mitchell Palmer. Uh, 500 foreign citizens were deported during these raids, including a number of prominent leftist leaders. But the intervention of comparatively more progressive um, bureaucrats at the Department of Labor prevented there from being even more um, deportations. And just remember that this is the administration of the same President Wilson, hero of today's internationalist liberals, who gave speeches denouncing hyphenated Americans and showed Ku Klux Klan propaganda in the White House. Now, the Palmer raids occurred in the larger context of the Red Scare, which was a fear of and reaction against communist radicals in the U.S. following World War I and the Russian Revolution. And this is the first Red Scare. Uh, Edgar is involved in both of them. Um, there were at this time many uh, strikes and race riots and two sets of bombings. Um, also at this time, uh, we're beginning the debates over what became the Immigration Act of 1924, which was an immigration act inspired by eugenics and that itself inspired the Nazis in its system of racial classification. And that immigration act targeted Southern European, Eastern European, uh, and Asian immigrants on political grounds and on ethnic and racial grounds. And it established quotas based on race where um, essentially unlimited number of Anglo-Saxon Protestant immigrants could come to the U.S. and uh, Jewish and Southern European immigration was massively restricted, and that's kind of the end of the period of uh, mass European immigration to the United States. And at this time, uh, Edgar got his first taste of publicity, um, and it was when he was the one who put through the deportation of Emma Goldman, the anarchist leader. Oh, that was him. Leader. That was him, yeah. So Emma Goldman was an anarchist activist and an active proponent of free love. Edgar described her intercepted letters as spicy reading. And given that she was a free love advocate and an extreme leftist, she was high on his shit list. Now, she had actually been living in the United States for 34 years since before Edgar was born, and her father and her former husband were both U.S. citizens. But he managed to achieve her deportation by claiming that her husband's citizenship had been obtained by fraud and that Goldman's speeches had inspired the assassin who killed President McKinley 18 years earlier. So four days before Christmas in 1919, at two o'clock in the morning, uh, Edgar boarded a boat and went to Ellis Island uh, and confronted Goldman her lover, Alexander Berkman, and 247 other people who were going to be deported as they were boarding the ship that was going to take them back to Russia. And the next day, he gave a press conference and uh, sort of celebrated what had happened and said, quote, other Soviet arcs will sail for Europe just as soon as it is necessary to rid the country of dangerous radicals. Now, many of the people who were seized in uh, various raids that Edgar oversaw were beaten and turned out to be innocent. And there was kind of an outcry against the Palmer raids in the United States. Um, but what had been proven to Edgar was that state oppression could work. Um, there was kind of a reaction to the raids saying that they had overreached. But still, the American Communist Party went from having uh, 80,000 members before the raids to 6,000 after them. And this is also the moment when Edgar discovered that you could spy on people and hunt them down, not because of crimes, but just because of their political beliefs. Um, Edgar's own political beliefs were staunchly guarded. He never joined a political party and never voted. 
And he said in public that he didn't like labels and wasn't political, but in fact, he was a staunch right-wing supporter of the Republican Party. And um, however, whenever he met with liberal politicians, he would pretend to be a liberal and apparently did it well. So Democrats were always convinced that he was a Democrat and Republicans were always convinced that he was a Republican. Now, uh, on May 11th or Mother's Day of 1924, Edgar received a gift from his mother, Annie, a star sapphire ring studded with diamonds, and he would wear the ring for the rest of his life. (laughs) One day earlier on May 10th, uh, Edgar had been promoted to head the Bureau of Investigation, and future FBI agents under his reign would have to remember May 10th, 1924, memorize it and be able to repeat it in order to continue their service in the agency. Wow. And Edgar quickly began to praise local law enforcement around the country and support their investigations and their work, and in so doing, built up a network of supporters and admirers in law enforcement. Now, in the early 1930s, uh, in the Great Depression, um, there were these networks of criminal gangs in the Midwest who carried out large numbers of bank robberies, and they had uh, really good firepower and fast getaway cars, and they were able to escape local law enforcement and made headlines around the United States. People like John Dillinger, who leapt over bank cages and would repeatedly escape from jails and police traps. And these gangsters actually had a certain level of popular support and sympathy because at this moment in the Great Depression, banks and bankers are correctly seen as oppressors uh, of common people and is responsible for a lot of this economic misery that's going on. Um, and Hoover becomes uh, credited publicly with many captures or shootings of these outlaws and bank robbers. Um, you know, Even though there is some level of public support for them, uh, there's also a lot of public support for law and order and against these kind of spectacular and lawless gangs. Um, and so uh, efforts with which he is credited include the capture of Machine Gun Kelly, uh, of Dillinger, and of Alvin Karpis. And these captures led to the Bureau of Investigation's powers being broadened, and in 1935, it was renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, Now, Hoover uh, expanded and combined fingerprint files uh, at this time and created the Identification Division of the FBI, and this created um, one of the largest collections of fingerprints to date, and he also created the FBI Laboratory, which uh, was established in 1932 to examine and analyze evidence. And with all of that, uh, the FBI became the largest and sort of most dominant domestic intelligence agency, as well as its initial role, which you'll remember uh, wasn't really intelligence gathering at all, but was just about kind of investigating uh, and fighting crimes that cross state lines. So now in the early 1940s, we get to uh, one of the many juicy bits. I want to quote a letter from J. Edgar Hoover to a man named Clyde Tolson, who we're going to be a lot more familiar with in a few minutes. And the letter reads, quote, Words are mere man-given symbols for thoughts and feelings, and they are grossly insufficient to express the thoughts in my mind and the feelings in my heart that I have for you. Oh, wow. Thank you. So uh, Clyde Tolson was born in Laredo, Missouri in 1900, and uh, when he was 18 years old, he went to the capital, Washington, to make his fortune and began to work in the War Department. Uh, He did night classes at George Washington University and in 1927 got his degree, 
Immediately upon getting his degree, he applied to join the FBI, but he was rejected. Then the following year, he applied again, but that uh, that time his application, which prominently featured a photograph of him, was seen by J. Edgar Hoover, and Hoover hired him immediately. And uh, based on, I'm sure, something more than his profile, uh, he was quickly promoted through the ranks and after only three years of experience became assistant director of the FBI. That's the old dog. So uh, Tolson and Hoover became um, very good friends and for the next 40 years would be constant companions. Uh, Within the FBI, they were known as J. Edna and Mother Tolson. (laughs) However, in reference to those spectacular uh, gang robberies in the 1930s, Truman Capote would always refer to them as Johnny and Clyde. (laughs) Now, one sort of interesting thing, given Hoover's um, obsession with uh, fighting lawlessness is that the FBI uh, never really strongly investigated the mafia, never really strongly investigated organized crime networks. And uh, it is believed, although I don't know if it's quite proven, that the reason why they never did is because there were compromising photographs of Hoover and Tolson, which were controlled by the gangsters Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello. Ah, classic, yeah. So... Hoover became uh, dependent on Tolson. He said, quote, Clyde Tolson is my alter ego. He can read my mind. Um, a senior official at the FBI would recall that the men were always together. Quote, Tolson was smarter than Mr. Hoover. He had a razor sharp mind. His great failing was that he slavishly followed Mr. Hoover's every dictate. And journalists began to, uh, shall we say, hint at the relationship between the two men Time magazine, for example, wrote, quote, Hoover is seldom seen without a male colleague, most frequently solemn-faced Clyde Tolson. But when this happened, the relevant journalist would often find themselves being investigated by the FBI. Robert Ludlum, in his novel The Chancellor Manuscript, uh, wrote, quote, Clyde's soft, pampered face, struggling for masculinity, had for decades been the flower to the bristled cactus, end quote. Collier's Magazine wrote, quote, Mr. Hoover is short, fat, businesslike, and walks with a mincing step. He dresses fastidiously, with Eleanor Blue as the favorite color for the matched shades of tie, handkerchief, and socks. A little pompous, he rides in a limousine, even if only to a nearby self-service cafeteria, end quote. The police inspector, Joseph Scheiman, who had a three-decade career in Washington, D.C., recalled, quote, when Hoddle, Hoddle was another FBI agent, went on the drunk, he'd go into different bars and start telling stories about the sex parties at Hoover's house, you know, with the boys. To give you an idea of the influence Hoover had, when Hoddle's wife would call in and say he's on a drunk, we would get an order over the teletype to the police department to cover the bars and pick him up right away and send him over to the FBI. That was to keep him from talking. End quote. And that agent Hoddle was never fired, perhaps he knew too much, but Scheiman said, quote, he wasn't fabricating. He'd attended some of the parties, let's put it that way. According to him, some of the top boys who were holding the top jobs at the FBI were participating. They were kind of promoted over other people. I guess sometimes in order to be promoted, you had to be one of the boys, end quote. So now we get uh, into the period uh, after World War II. Now during World War II, the FBI was mostly focused on the Nazi threat, but 
um, after World War II begun the infamous twinned red and lavender scares where, or the second red scare and the first lavender scare, where um, people suspected of being communists and or gays were purged from various places, notably Hollywood and the federal government. Uh, the purge began in Hollywood when the House Committee on Un-American Activities began its assault on the film industry, and uh, J. Edgar played actually a leading role in that in secret. Um, now, the actor Sterling Hayden uh, discovered how much power Edgar actually had on these investigations, even though they were supposed to be independent congressional investigations. Hayden had been a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s, and decided to come clean because he was worried about uh, being exposed in the investigation. And so he wrote so he wrote to Hoover, who he had met uh, through his attorney, and asked for advice. And Hoover told him to get it on the record and said he would help if anything came up. Uh, he then secretly forwarded the confession to the Committee on Un-American Activities, which subpoenaed Hayden, forced him to testify, and he named many of his friends and colleagues. Oh. Now, this Red Scare, as I mentioned earlier, was also a Lavender Scare. Um, there's a book called, by David K. Johnson um, about how during the Cold War, uh, homosexuals were considered just as much of a threat to national security as communists. People who listened to our Roy Cohn episode from last year will remember some stories about another kind of horrid, vicious queen who... Uh, oversaw a lot of uh, the ends of a lot of careers and, in fact, the ends of a lot of lives. Um, and uh, and Hoover was very active in uh, that scare as well. Hoover would be quoted in the Elks magazine in 1956 as saying, quote, The menace of communism in this country will remain a menace until the American people make themselves aware of the techniques of communism. No one who truly understands what it really is can be taken in by it. Yet the individual is handicapped by coming face to face with a conspiracy so monstrous he cannot believe it exists. The American mind simply has not come to a realization of the evil which has been introduced into our midst. It rejects even the assumption that human creatures could espouse a philosophy which ultimately destroys all that is good and decent, end quote. And I would say the same thing about J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Yeah. Um, now, the FBI had participated in something called the Venona Project, which was a project dating to before World War II that uh, worked with the British to spy on suspected Soviet agents in the UK and the United States. Um, now, initially, they didn't realize that these Soviet agents were actually doing anything, but since the Soviets used one-time pad ciphers multiple times, there were redundancies which allowed intercepts to be decoded. And those intercepts, which were sort of America's biggest counterintelligence secret, were kept in a locked safe in his office, and he did not tell President Truman or President Roosevelt uh, about these uh, secrets and, uh, in fact, didn't uh, give over the documents until 1952 when he was able to hand them over to the CIA, another unaccountable intelligence agency spying on citizens. Um, also, before the sort of high point of the Lavender Scare, um, he had uh, plans to suspend habeas corpus. Um, in 1946, he was authorized by the Attorney General to compile a list of potentially disloyal Americans who could be detained during a wartime emergency. And in 1950, Hoover himself proposed to President Truman 
that uh, the government should suspend the writ of habeas corpus and detain 12,000 Americans uh, preemptively. Um, President Truman did not act on the plan. Now, in the early 1950s, the United States Supreme Court, under the leadership of its Chief Justice, Earl Warren, became increasingly liberal on many issues, uh, famously school desegregation and Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, these decisions were also, however, affecting the Justice Department's ability to prosecute people for their political opinions. How awful. Um, Hoover apparently was self-consciously exaggerating the threat of communism to ensure continued financial support and public support for the FBI. But at this time, uh, frustrated by these decisions, he formalized a secret dirty tricks program known as COINTELPRO. Uh, So COINTELPRO was first used to target the Communist Party USA. Uh, He went after targets including Charlie Chaplin, uh, who he thought was spreading propaganda. And the methods of COINTELPRO, which again was entirely secret to everyone, no one knew about this. Uh, These methods included infiltration, burglaries, illegal wiretaps, planting forced documents, and spreading false rumors about members of target organizations. Um, And some accounts have charged that their methods also included violence and uh, arranged murders or hits. And uh, Hoover was able to continue amassing his power by collecting files that contained compromising and embarrassing information on powerful people, especially politicians. Um, In 1974, after uh, Hoover died, the then director of the FBI, Clarence Kelly, thought that those files didn't exist. Um, But in 1975, after a story in the Washington Post, the files were mysteriously discovered, proving that Hoover had... um, established and maintained his power by holding the secrets of uh, powerful people. Um, and COINTELPRO tactics were used against a lot of people that you would expect and a lot of people that you wouldn't. In the second category uh, is John Lennon. Uh, John Lennon was under surveillance. Um, and I'm going to read now from a memo that Hoover wrote to uh, Haldeman, uh, who was uh, the assistant to the president in 1972. Quote, John Winston Lennon is a British citizen and former member of the Beatles singing group. Lennon has taken an interest in extreme left-wing activities in Britain and is known to be a sympathizer of Trotskyite communists. Well, that's true. Well, it's true, but, you know, uh, so... Perhaps more disturbingly than with Lenin, um, this uh, monitoring and more than monitoring really kind of uh, awful interventionist and disruptive uh, tactics of COINTELPRO were also trained against political activists in the United States, notably those in the um, African-American civil rights movement. People maybe won't be surprised to hear that these tactics were used against the Black Panther Party and Malcolm X but they were also used against Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, He told President Kennedy that MLK had tried to arrange a sex party while in the Capitol for the March on Washington. After Kennedy was shot, he told Robert Kennedy that King had made derogatory comments during the president's funeral. Uh, And perhaps most disturbingly, under Hoover's leadership, the FBI sent this anonymous letter to Martin Luther King in 1964. 
So the letter was not labeled as being obviously from the FBI, but this is just goes to show how far these COINTELPRO tactics went against uh, even beloved and prominent American political figures and American dissenters. Quote, King, in view of your low-grade abnormal personal behavior, I will not dignify your name with either a reverend or a mister or a doctor. And your last name calls to mind only the type of king such as King Henry VIII and his countless acts of adultery and immoral conduct lower than that of a beast. King, look into your heart. You know you are a complete fraud and a great liability to all of us Negroes. White people in this country have enough frauds of their own, but I am sure they don't have one at this time that is anywhere near your equal. Just to interject, this letter was almost certainly written by a white agent. You are no clergyman and you know it. I repeat, you are a colossal fraud and an evil vicious one at that. You could not believe in God and act as you do. Clearly, you don't believe in any personal moral principles. Um, now, the story of King arranging sex parties is probably not true, but it is thought that King had some extramarital affairs, and that's what this letter is probably referring to. Um, quote, King, like all frauds, your end is approaching. You could have been our greatest leader. You, even at an early age, have turned out not to be a leader, but a dissolute, abnormal, moral imbecile. Your honorary degrees, your Nobel Prize, what a grim farce and other awards will not save you. King, I repeat, you are done. No person can overcome facts, not even a fraud like yourself. Lend your psych sexually psychotic ear to the enclosure. You will find yourself in all your dirt, filth, evil, and moronic talk exposed on the record for all. I repeat, no person can argue successfully against facts. You are finished. You will find on the record for all time your filthy, dirty, evil companions, males and females, giving expression with you to your hideous abnormalities, and some of them to pretend to be ministers of the gospel. Satan could not do more. What incredible evilness. It is all there on the record, your sexual orgies. Listen to yourself, you filthy, abnormal animal. You are on the record. You have been on the record. All your adulterous acts, your sexual orgies extending far into the past. This one is but a tiny sample. You will understand this. Yes, from your various evil playmates on the East Coast to Redacted and others on the West Coast and outside the country, you are on the record. King, you are done. The American public, the church organizations that have been helping, Protestant, Catholic, and Jews will know you for what you are, an evil, abnormal beast. So will others who have backed you. You are done. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. You are done. There is only one way out for you, and you had better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. So the letter is trying to encourage him to commit suicide. Yeah. That's how far these tactics went, trying to convince Martin Luther King to commit suicide. Oh, piece of shit. And this program, COINTELPRO, remained in place until 1971, when it was exposed to the public by a group of eight activists who stole internal documents from an office in Media, Pennsylvania. Uh, at that time, Lyndon Johnson was quoted as having said, quote, it's probably better to have him inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Americans at this time discovered that uh, Hoover's secret FBI was not an exemplar of law and order and integrity, but lawless and unprincipled and suppressed the dissent of Americans. With blackmail and burglary as favorite tools and uh, agents ordered to spy and create ongoing files on the private lives and sexual activities of the nation's highest officials and other powerful people. Um, now, at this time, the president was Richard Nixon, and uh, bad for him, but good for us, he taped all of his conversations in the White House. And so here's Richard Nixon reflecting on Edgar Hoover in 1971 on tape. Quote, 
For a lot of reasons, he ought to resign. He should get the hell out of here. Now, it may be, which I kind of doubt, maybe I could just call him and talk him into resigning. There are some problems. If he does go, he's got to go of his own volition. That's why we're in a hell of a problem. I think he'll stay till he's 100 years old. Now, why did Nixon say uh, he had to go of his own volition? Quote, I think we've got to avoid the situation where he can leave with a blast. We may have on our hands here a man who will pull down the temple with him, including me. It's going to be a problem. And luckily for Nixon and for uh, the other powerful people in Washington who had enabled Hoover, uh, it wasn't a problem for long. In 1972, he died in his sleep of a heart attack. And when the undertakers arrived at his house to remove the corpse, this is what they saw. At the foot of the stairs, an elderly man, Clyde Tolson, sat in a chair and stared into space, and various younger men, loyal FBI agents, were rifling through doors, taking books off the shelves, leafing through the pages, and removing evidence from the house. Um, when Hoover died, Tolson inherited his estate of $551,000, which is now the equivalent of $3 million, and moved into his house where he had not lived before. Um, and he was the one who was given and accepted the U.S. flag that was draped on Hoover's coffin. Tolson uh, died on April 14, 1975, of heart failure, also in Washington, D.C., and is buried in the Congressional Cemetery near Hoover's grave. Wow. As you do with your boss, right? As you do with your boss, yes. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So... To support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. Well, that's, um, what a truly, uh, revolting person. Um... One of the very worst people, one of the very worst people there ever has been. I mean, I think this is a really interesting twin story with the Roy Cohn episode because they're definitely kind of cut from the same cloth, I think. Yeah, friends, right? Yeah. And I encourage everyone to not let images of uh, Hoover and Roy Cohn at a sex party enter your head because they have now entered mine and I can't get them out and they are very disturbing. Was America a police state under J. Edgar Hoover? Was? I mean, under J. Edgar Hoover. Under J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, yes and no. I think while being very critical of uh, Hoover's FBI and the unbelievable and disturbing power that it had, it's worth noting that they were not actually successful at suppressing all political dissent in the United States during that period. I mean, this is a period that's characterized by, just to give you one example, uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, King did not kill himself, although he was killed. Um, was characterized by the anti-war and student movements of the 1960s and the 1970s. And while those movements were horribly repressed, um, it was not a situation where something like Hoover's kind of worst fever dreams of what he wanted to do, like detaining 12,000 disloyal Americans, ever came to pass. So while, being, while saying yes 
Um, yes, it certainly was to some extent. And yes, the um, surveillance and in some cases, detention and arrest and deportation of political dissidents is unbelievably disturbing. Um, there was also obviously some room for um, some room for the expression of divergent political views. Sure. But while he didn't manage to crush, say, the student movement, he did manage to crush uh, totally some political movements that would have shifted America from its political course that it has reached its current conclusion or ongoing conclusion. For example, the Black Panthers, like he managed to destroy the Black Panther Party. Absolutely. Um, and before the Black Panther Party also, it's important to remember the devastating impact that the second Red Scare had on the American labor movement, where many of the American labor movement's most effective and most radical activists and organizers were um, purged from the unions because the unions were afraid of being tarred as communist. Yeah. And that had just an absolutely devastating impact on the ability of American labor to maintain its radicalism after the kind of post-war consensus um, that was fueled by, you know, America, unlike most of the rest of the advanced industrial economies, having not been destroyed. Uh, you know, there was so much to go around in the 1950s that a lot of unions figured that it was just going to be good times forever. And so were willing to give over or get rid of some of their kind of more radical activists, uh, especially under fear that those activists would bring down the whole union as somehow being a Soviet plot or something. Uh, but then when time started to get tough in the 1970s, that demobilization uh, really led to a tremendous weakness in uh, American labor uh, from which American labor is still not recovered. It's been on a steady downward trend ever since. And actually only recently uh, has there been the emergence um, since this kind of first high point of uh, socialist politics in the U.S. Um, um, you know, elected officials uh, before the Palmer Raids or the sort of mass American Communist Party of the 1930s. Um, yeah, all of that was successfully suppressed um, until very recently. And I think we still feel the negative effects of that repression. One thing that I find so fascinating about it is the degree to which something that's such a massive part of the American um, deep state is kind of just the creation of one man's um, burgeoning overreach the whole time. You know, that, that it doesn't seem that he was, there was no proposal to set up the FBI in its state. He just kept growing it and growing it and growing it in order to realize his own politics or what have you. And, um, and that, that he sort of developed the idea almost as a one-man project of um, of pushing it as far as he could go and pushing against the elected officials and pushing against the judiciary in order to achieve what he wanted to achieve personally, which seems in many ways to be driven by his own psychological framework and, and paranoia and needs to catalog everyone's lives. Absolutely. But it's also important to note that his particular um, psychosexual fuck up was entirely convergent with the interests of uh, where real power lies in America, yeah. which is not always with elected officials um, and which is often with uh, the exact sorts of people for whom an active labor movement or an active left-wing political movement presents a real grave danger to uh, their way of life. Yeah. And this might be a question based more around some speculation from you, but what to what degree do we know about his sexual proclivities and interests and how that actually might have affected those sort of um his either his paranoia or his 
development of the FBI? Well, we have uh, these stories from those FBI agents about, uh, at least in the 1930s and 40s, uh, sex parties that uh, Hoover would host with Tolson and, and other agents, other sort of top agents of the FBI, um, which does a few things for me. I mean, one thing that's interesting is uh, thinking of that really shocking letter from uh, written to King. Um, you know, detailing your sex orders and your this and your that. It's like, girlfriend, that's exactly what you were doing. Yeah, it's all projection. Um, But I also think that if you were someone who was interested in gay public sex, it was at the sort of heights of American political power in the 1930s or 1940s or gay group sex, rather, it wasn't public. Um, I think that would uh, engender or um, kind of go along with an existing and growing paranoia. um, And it would kind of sort of feed that uh, yeah. altogether, you know? And um, to what extent do you think that the lavender scare changed the direction of gay politics in the US? Extensively, I think, um, in a few ways. Uh, one being that um, the sort of twinned lavender and red scares, along with the emergence of the much more uh, conservative policies around sex and the family under Joseph Stalin uh, helped affect a split between gay politics and the organized left as such that lasted for a long time that didn't exist uh, necessarily in the same way in other uh, advanced democracies and that I think was really damaging to the U.S. gay movement's ability to have a kind of broader political framework for its ideas. Um, an example of that is the Mattachine Society, which is founded by a group of communists in L.A. in 1948 as one of the first kind of long-lasting uh, gay rights or sort of gay movement organizations uh, in the U.S., which in the early 1950s purges all of its founders because the members are so worried that uh, affiliation with communism is going to get them all thrown in jail and shut down. The other thing that you have to say that it does, though, is um, – start a lot of uh, organizing among the men who got fired from their jobs, especially in D.C. So D.C. Mattachine, under the leadership of Frank Kameny in the late 1950s and early 1960s, becomes one of the most kind of radical and aggressive chapters of Mattachine. And one of the reasons is that there's this body of members who were purged from their positions and who were living under this particular kind of fear and were able to organize around this demand for um, just being able to uh, be employed and to do their jobs. Yeah, I believe there were 5,000 members of the State Department who were sacked as part of the uh, Lavender Scare. If you think about that, making 5,000 sort of educated um, State State Department officials who understand how the whole system works, uh, unemployed and unemployable and just sending them out into the world is a real kickstarter for any sort of political movement. Absolutely. Um, And before then, all of this stuff was really just an open secret. I mean, there's a great story from uh, World War II and a lot of stories about kind of um, gay and lesbian people beginning to kind of find one another uh, during World War II are collected in this fabulous book by Alan Barabay called Coming Out Under Fire that I think I've mentioned a few times on the show. But anyway, the story is that... um, Eisenhower went to the head of the Women's Army Corps, which was a group of women who were serving in various kind of um, bureaucratic army roles during the war. This is when uh, Eisenhower was general. And uh, Eisenhower calls in the head of the Women's Army Corps and says, you know, I've been hearing these stories about lesbianism in the Women's Army Corps, and I need you to compile for me a list of these awful lesbians so we can get rid of them. 
And the woman said, well, in that case, the list can start with my name and contain everyone else. <laughs> and it wasn't spoken of again because there was a word of whim. The other thing is that uh, during the Roosevelt administration, the uh, United States Public Service had become a place where progressive-minded people and sort of avant-garde-minded people, whether they be gays or communists or both, uh, wanted to work. And so a lot of people had kind of entered into public service in a very comfortable and maybe even semi-open way. And then all of a sudden in this new environment of the early 1950s found themselves really being hung out to dry. Yeah. With this new sort of fear. Um, also because, of course, during the war, the Soviets had been, at least to some extent, our friends. And there's you know, these like joint uh, U.S.-Russian propaganda films actually made by Hollywood where American soldiers go to Russia and learn that you know, it's okay that there's different economic systems because we're all fighting the Nazis. And then, you know, right in 1945, it changes immediately. Actually, one of the big tragedies of U.S. history uh, of that period, or at least one of the very big what-ifs, is that for Roosevelt's last re-election campaign in 1944, he was persuaded to change his vice president. Um, his vice president from uh, for the previous four years had been a man named Henry Wallace, who was really on the left wing of the far left wing of the Roosevelt administration, and who was advocating for uh, peace with the Soviet Union and cooperation with the Soviet Union after the war. Um, and in 1944, uh, because of Roosevelt's frailty uh, against the advice of Eleanor, um, he was persuaded to switch to Harry Truman, who was much more sort of moderate and conservative. And if Wallace had taken over in 1945 when Roosevelt died, um, many things are unclear. Yeah. Uh, it would have been very different. Uh, Wallace might not have authorized the atomic bombing of Japan um, and certainly would not have pursued the kind of Cold War policies that Truman began with the Korean War and that, uh, of course, Eisenhower and further presidents would enthusiastically continue. Um, if you want to be a little bit more kind of sober-minded and materialist about it, you'd say that um, some kind of confrontation would have been forced and Wallace might have uh, lost or been kind of forced out of office or it all might have happened anyway, just yeah. with a sort of different timing. But, um, you know, the fact that someone like Wallace, who in some ways was kind of an open communist sympathizer, was vice president for four years. And then just a few years later, you've got all these people being drummed out of office shows you just how quickly this kind of swung back um, after World War Two. Well, who would have gotten maybe yeah or maybe he would have got hoover who knows so j edgar hoover bad gay or not bad gay oh very bad very 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 bad very 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 bad what was that quote about roy Cohn, the pole star of human evil yeah this is the other pole star of human evil feeding poached eggs to the dogs in his creepy house with his mother in the shades drawn Ugh. yeah revolting <laughs> So that's the last one of our nefarious Nellies uh, for this season. We've talked about Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great and Nicky Crane and Pietro Aretino. We've talked about the Stonewall Nation gays. We've talked about Piers Gaveston. What have we learned this season? Last season, I feel like we came away with some very clear takeaways around uh, evil twink energy and kind of making sure that we take uh, a route out of homosexuality that isn't just about kind of masculinity and ourselves, but is also about the liberation of others. And this season has been more mixed. I mean, I don't know if there's really as uh, that much of a neat bow that we can put on it, but um, certainly all of those themes have come back once again. Yeah, I don't want to subscribe to a great man theory of history, but I do. It is, it is interesting how with all these people, their own idiosyncrasies, their own 
strange ambitions that, that I think for most of us we could never identify with and their own positions that they're put in materially as a result of their place in history have really changed um, just the societies they live in to, to a huge extent. Absolutely. And it's, you know, instead of thinking about um, a great man theory of history where it's all about what they did and who they were, etc., I think what we have been trying to do is think about them as lenses or as metonyms, you know, as little stories. And then, and then that's the way through to understanding something bigger uh, or something. Yeah. One thing I've noticed is they, all the people are caught up in the times they live in. They trying to find their way through and almost all of them make terrible, terrible decisions. Yes. Just quite often decisions. They're, they're thinking with their, um, you know, so Ben, if people want to know more about J. Edgar Hoover and his proclivities, um, do you have any recommended reading? I do. And these were also my sources for the episode. Uh, there's a book called The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI by Betty Medzger. There is a book called The Lavender Scare, The Cold War Persecutions of Gays and Lesbians in the Federal Government by David K. Johnson. And then a book called Official and Confidential, The Secret Life of J. Edgar Hoover by Anthony Summers. And then some of uh, my entertaining stories about Hoover and uh, Tolson's sex life came from Spartacus Educational's excellent article on Tolson. And uh, all of that will be mentioned and linked in the show notes as always. So um, that brings our season to a close. Thank you so much for listening. And we do have some very special episodes, as always, coming up between seasons. So stay tuned for those. And of course, stay tuned for season three of the show, which will be happening uh, probably sometime in the early months of 2020. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGaysPod. Thank you so much for listening to our second season. And until we see you again, uh, may your life be free of vicious queens. Bad. 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 Bad.